Good Sunday morning. This is the Arts Section. I'm your host, Gary Zydek. Welcome to WDCB's Arts and Culture magazine. Every week we spotlight creative people, events, and ideas in the Chicago area arts community, while also fostering broader discussions on music, film, theater, and other creative endeavors. Support for the Arts Section comes from the League of Chicago Theaters. On today's program, I'll take a closer look at the Joyce Foundation. The Chicago-based organization just handed out five awards to support artists of color in the Great Lakes region. I'll catch up with one of the winners, a Chicago-based playwright who's partnering with the National Museum of Mexican Art. The dueling critics Carrie Reed and Jonathan Abarbanel will join me to review Chicago Shakespeare's premiere, It Came From Outer Space. Later, I'll talk to the curator behind a new immersive experience that pays homage to the Louvre, and we'll hear about an exhibition at the Elmhurst Art Museum that highlights nature's influence on contemporary design. All that's coming up. Thanks for making some time for arts and culture this morning. A Chicago-based philanthropic organization is continuing its efforts to support underrepresented artists in the Great Lakes region. This summer, the Joyce Foundation handed out $375,000 in grants to five Midwest-based artists. The Joyce Awards started in 2004. Since then, the foundation has awarded more than $4 million to commission 77 new works and collaborations in Chicago, Cleveland, Detroit, Indianapolis, Milwaukee, and Minneapolis-St. Paul. This year's group of five award winners includes two Chicago recipients, including playwright Nancy Garcia Loza, who is partnering with the National Museum of Mexican Art on a new theater project that explores the complexities of bicultural identity. We'll hear more about that project later. First, more on the Joyce Foundation. The Joyce Foundation's mission is to advance racial equity and economic mobility for the next generation. This is Mia Kim, the director of the Foundation's culture program. We launched a new strategy in 2021, which really aimed to, by focusing on Chicago, support the development, growth, and visibility of artists of color and art organizations of color to advance racial equity and inspire creativity in communities. The foundation aims to achieve those goals through its annual Joyce Awards program. The Joyce Awards is the foundation's signature artist commissioning program and it's actually the only regional program supporting new artistic commissions by artists of color in the Great Lakes. So the program is really about supporting innovative collaborations between artists of color and organizations that are based in one of six Great Lakes cities. Those are Chicago, Cleveland, Detroit, Indianapolis, Milwaukee, and Minneapolis-St. Paul. For the Joyce Awards, it's about a collaboration that engages a central component of the Joyce Awards is that there's a large community engagement component, meaning the artists have a particular vision of producing a work that can cut across different disciplines from theater, dance, visual arts, multidisciplinary arts. But a key component of that project is that it engages the community in in a particular way, and it really engages the community to co-create and participate in the creation of the work. We're looking for projects that really ask the artist to stretch their artistic practice, to really deepen their mode of inquiry into a particular project. Our goal here is that this project allows 
the commissioning organization to deepen their relationship with their communities and or build new communities and partnerships. And that's what we've seen across the board since our first choice award in 2004. Once all the applications are in, an external jury comprised of artists and creatives helps make the final selections. So there's an external jury that deliberates on the finalists. And of course, since it's a foundation, the final or the jury makes recommendations to the foundation's board of directors, which the foundation's board of directors then approves. But the jury really is involved in reading the full proposal and looking at the applications from a range of criteria that includes artistic quality, caliber of the artist, degree of community engagement, feasibility of the project. And this year we were able to, for the first time, incorporate past Joyce Award artists into our jury. And this was really helpful because these folks know firsthand what it takes to be able to complete a Joyce Award. The Joyce Award is unique because it's a longer-term project. The projects have to be completed between 12 to 18 months. So it's an opportunity for sustained work and engagement. So the Joyce Award artists who served on the panel were able to bring their past experience to bear on, on the evaluation of the proposals. Is there any directive on how the money is spent? Yeah, so the only requirement, it's a $75,000 award, and we increased the award amount from 50000 to 75000 in 2021. And the reason for that is we wanted to make sure that the commissioned artists were equitably compensated. And so we just asked that at least $25,000 of that $75,000 award go to the artist as a, as a stipend. Are you the person that gets to call the recipients to let them know that they're getting they're getting an award? I am. I am. I have the honor of being able to tell the recipients, so both the artist as well as the commissioning organization, that their award has been approved by our board of directors. And it's always one of the highlights of my job, um, being able to share with them that moment because of the tremendous work that it also takes to apply itself. Um, we take that really seriously, especially um, we appreciate all of the applications that have come in. This year, we received the largest number of applications to date, over 90. And so we know that for each of those applicants, they put in a lot of hard work, and we want to recognize that as well. So, of course, it's really nice to be able to celebrate and share the good news with, with the winners. If you're just tuning in, this is the Arts Section. My name is Gary Zydek. I'm talking with the Joyce Foundation's Culture Program Director, Mia Kim, about the annual Joyce Awards. This year's award-winning class was unveiled in June. Among the winners was Chicago-based theater artist Nancy Garcia Loza, who is partnering with the National Museum of Mexican Art to develop a new piece of theater. Kim says the Loza National Museum of Mexican Art application stood out for several reasons. I was really struck by the central premise of Nancy's project, which is really to challenge more about the monolithic narrative of Mexican migration or just migration to the United States. I'm a child of immigrants myself, and so the idea of belonging to more than one place and bicultural identity is something that I think cuts across immigrant experiences, so not just for Mexican Mexican immigrants, although Chicago has a very large Mexican population. And so I was really struck by the, the central idea behind Nancy's project, but I was also impressed by her process. She is going to be developing this play through 
leading artist-led workshops for aspiring playwrights of color in Chicago, and also hosting various public events that will facilitate community dialogue around immigration experiences. So this play is not one that's going to be written in isolation. In fact, the community engagement that Nancy will be leading is going to be really central to the development of the work, and that's something that really excited us. Another thing that also attracted me to this project is the fact that Nancy is a self-taught playwright. I'd never been in a play. I'd never participated in theater in school. It never felt like a place I belonged. Oftentimes the stories on stage, they weren't really reflecting me or my community. This is playwright Nancy Garcia-Loza. She found her passion for writing a little later than some. Even like the crew, the cast, and the, and the folks involved in making the sausage, so to speak, they also weren't part of my community, even at the high school level. So... You know, I joined soccer and ate Cheetos and definitely did not have a future as a professional soccer player, but I found something different to do as a kid. But once I was an adult and I was really curious about just telling the stories that came from my community and especially semi-autobiographical ones and the stuff that was close to me, my family, and, and what moved me, I think just seeing that magic moment in theater where we're all kind of, you know, we all suspend the disbelief, we're all there together, and that, that sort of unison of experiencing and bearing witness to a story in a room with people, that's when I got the bug. I'd been curious about other mediums, but once I saw a play, that was it. And once she got the bug, Loza got to work. She's won several prestigious residencies at theater companies, and plays she's authored have been presented by some very prominent theater companies. One of Loza's plays will be premiering this fall as part of the Paramount Theater's Bold series, when it came time to apply for the Joyce Award, she knew she wanted to submit something very personal. I want to tell the story of what it meant to me as a Mexican-American in Chicago, what it meant to me to go back to Mexico for the first time and really organically just start living and breathing what it meant to belong to more than one home. You know, the biggest blessing you can get when, when a producing organization calls you is that they're all in. For your artistically driven idea, you know, oftentimes you can come up with a concept together. But I think one of the things that we learned and also one of the things that has really worked with, with myself and the National Museum of Mexican Art is how receptive and supportive they've been to saying, Nancy, we want to support the story that you want to tell in whatever way you want to tell it. So let's, let's try to make that happen. Um, that's been, you know, that, that gave me air, especially after during, during a time when so much work was was canceled and it you know you had a plan and it just disappeared here was an opportunity to say okay but what's one of the most important stories i want to tell knowing that time expires what is something that i have to have to tell and this story for me felt very urgent it's just a concept right i've never written anything for it um but i had a really strong inclination that i didn't want to just be a writer that translated the Christmas Carol, for instance, for Chicago stages. I wanted to write a story that was really close to my experience and that I knew by extension is an experience shared by more than 3 million um, Chicago immigrant families. Lowe's Joyce Award-winning project hasn't been written yet, but it does have a title. It's called Penhamo, a Pocha road trip story. The idea is to dive into Loza's personal history to explore her memories of visiting Mexico for the first time around 1986. That's when the Immigration Reform and Control Act passed, providing amnesty to immigrant families wishing to visit their countries of origin for the first time since coming to the U.S. The play will be set in somewhere in the year probably 88 to 89. 
It's about a trip returning home in December um, during the winter break here in CP- at Chicago Public Schools, which is when my family took that trip. But the memories are pulled from about five years of my life, um, inclu- including taking inspiration from the audio and visual footage that I've compiled. You know, someone, when we first went back, someone someone had like just the spontaneous impulse to hit record on a stereo deck. And I have found the tapes of some of those first family gatherings, those parties where we were all united again after a decade. It was a very special moment to be able to hit play on them. Um, I got a chance to be transported to 1988 to 1990, I got a chance to time travel, so to speak, which I do think is something that the Joyce Award is uniquely offering me. Like, yes, I'm writing, I'm writing a play right now, but I'm going to get a chance to try and time travel and confront what these memories mean, what I get to sort of relive, re-experience, what it meant to the very, like, the origins of becoming a pocha and really beginning to understand that I belong to more than one place, that we live in metaphysical borders here in Chicago, right? We're not, we're not right along the borderlands, but it, it does mean something to be Mexican in this city and call more than one place home and have roots in two countries and be, be wondering and feeling all of these things. Um, and experiencing them without like an academic sense of identity, right? I'm very interested in the feelings of a thing. I don't think that the story of of the return migration is something that's been told a lot on stage. Like I haven't seen a story of a return migration uh, very often, and I know that it completely transformed me. As a child of immigrants, we oftentimes grow up with this romanticized story of what home meant to our parents and our ancestors. Jorge Valdivia is the Director of Performing Arts at the National Museum of Mexican Art. The organization is partnering with Loza on this new play. I think that sometimes when you are able to visit your parents' homeland and see where they grew up, you realize this could have been your, your life as well. I think this idea of what home is, what home means to us, it can be very different. For some people, it's a healing process. For others, it's a process of, you know, sort of affirming everything that some of the things that our parents told us. So, yeah, home can mean a lot of different things to different people. And I just found that particularly interesting, something that would resonate with the Mexican community, the Mexican-American community, the Latino community, and most definitely the immigrant community. Winning a Joyce Award is obviously a huge honor. Loza says this project wouldn't be possible without the award. The award makes the project possible, I'm in period. Like this, the Joyce Awards, they allow you to, to be commissioned to write a play. So literally this, this will go from concept and idea into a full-fledged story that's ready to produce on stage. I have 18 months to go from I have a title, I have a notion of what the story is, and I have a reason for writing it. And I have an impulse for where the story should should take me and the audience, but without the without the Joyce Award, it you know it could have stayed in concept stages. I could have been sort of still waiting, waiting in waters, you know, to see if someone would support the creation of this work. And so this the award makes it it makes it possible. It makes it real. It gives me time and space and um, creative allocation to be able to say for 18 months I'm going to make sure that I write this play. It's been a very special opportunity because I first had this, I had the idea for this play in 2018. I got asked to translate Christmas Carol 
for a theater and something, you know, I think for many writers that would have been like a, the gig, right? It would have been so exciting to be like, wow, like I'm going to get to do this. It's going to, you know, so many folks are going to see and so many students and young people are going to see the Christmas Carol this winter. But when I got approached about it, I actually was, I felt differently. I was like, no, I want to do something different. I want the story to come from me. So kindly, I declined the project. It just didn't feel artistically like it was sitting in, in the right in the right place for me. The Joyce Award, you know, here we are four years later. It allows me to realize the idea onto paper. And uh, I have no doubt in my mind that following my 18-month period at the Joyce Award, this project will be on Chicago stages. As we just heard, Loza's ultimate goal is for Penhamo to be staged in an actual theater. That's the long-term vision. In the meantime, the plan is to present a live reading of the play in about a year and a half. This project is going to culminate in a public reading of the play. You won't see a fully flushed production, right, because that'll be the next stage following the Joyce Award Commission. But we'll pre- we will be presenting a public reading of the play in December of 2023. In terms of partnering with a theater to tell this story, um, I, I think it's a little bit too early for us to speak to that right now. So I think the first, you know, there will be readings of this play at the museum. And then I think as we move further along in the project toward thinking about more formal uh, production presentations of it, I think at that point, you know, farther down the road, then those discussions about showcasing this play fully produced in partnership with either a theater or a festival, that'll be something that we'll be able to discuss, I think, uh, as we get further along. Valdivia says the National Museum of Mexican Art will also play a part in the project moving forward. We're going to host the first public workshop reading of the play eventually. We're also providing, we're partnering with the Latino Writers Initiative, where Nancy will come in and host some workshops around storytelling, but through this lens of of home and being either an immigrant or the, the children of immigrants and what that means. So, you know, we're partnering with Nancy in a number of different ways. Being able to host the public reading is something that we're really looking forward to. And then, you know, beyond that, there's also a lot of excitement in being able to take this to full production. The first staged reading of Penhamo, a Pocha road trip story, is set to take place in December of 2023. In the meantime, you can visit nationalmuseumofmexicanart.org for updates, and you can learn more about the Joyce Awards at joycefdn.org. And a quick reminder, make sure to check out the program's website, theartsection.org, and you can find past episodes and individual features like the one you just heard available to listen to on demand anytime you want, plus pictures and links that go along with all the features you hear on the program. Check out theartsection.org. This is Major Tom to Ground Control. And you are listening to the Arts Section. My name is Gary Zydek. I'm joined now remotely by the dueling critics, Carrie Reed and Jonathan Abarbanel. Good morning. Good morning, Gary. Good morning, Gary. 
Hope you guys are doing well. While Chicago Shakespeare Theater continues to produce works by its namesake and other more traditional period pieces, the Navy Pier-based company also invests in new productions outside of any genre confinements. There was the Tony-nominated Sixth, which started at Chicago Shakespeare pre-pandemic. Last fall, the company produced a Shakespeare Beatles mashup of As You Like It, and now it's presenting a musical comedy adaptation of the 1950s sci-fi film It Came From Outer Space. And it looks like audiences are all for it, as Chicago Shakespeare recently extended the production's run through the end of the month. And we'll start with you, Jonathan. You're somewhat familiar with the source material here. You've seen the, the film It Comes From Outer Space? Yes, you know, uh, it, it's, it's one of those early 1950s sci-fi movies, the kind we kind of make fun of today, you know, the ones with multi-armed Martians or radiation-enlarged insects. Um, <laughs> you know, we have to remember that some of these films have serious messages. The ones that come to, to mind are The Day the Earth Stood Still, famously, and this one. It came from outer space, 1953, about gelatinous-looking aliens who crashed <laughs> land in Arizona. Uh, but the story... Uh, not the screenplay, but the original stories by the sci-fi icon Ray Bradbury. And there's a serious message. It urges us to overcome our instinctive fears of those beings who are very different from ourselves. So the main challenge for the musical adapters, who are Joe Kenosian and Kellen Blair, is how do you make fun of 1950s sci-fi cliches and still honor the film's message. Uh, I think that's the essential, let's call it, dramaturgical issue that um, you have to wrestle with to make a musical comedy, as you said, a musical comedy adaptation out of something that wasn't a musical and wasn't a comedy originally. And I think they've approached this in two ways. The first and most important is they've given it a highly creative physical production under director Laura Brazzo and an exceptional design team, especially the wonderful projection, video projection designs by Rashawn Devante Johnson and Michael Salvatore Commendatore. I guess you have to have three names if you're going to be a video or projections designer. But they've created wonderful uh, designs that are a kind of beautiful 3D-ish effects because the, the film that came from outer space, the original film, was shot in 3D. There are also wonderful costumes and wigs and makeup, which uh, all add to the fun, as uh, the small acting ensemble doubles as both humans and aliens. So that was the first thing they did. That's all fun. And then the authors make fun of the cliché lead characters. They take the ones from the film, and they, they actually exaggerate them even more. The egghead scientist, who all of these films you know, had an egghead <laughs> scientist, who's the first one to encounter the aliens, the local sheriff who doesn't believe him, and the local stool, school teacher they both love. So the sheriff and the scientist are set up as rivals in love. But even with all of this uh, fun stuff, there's still, for me, a tone shift as the show proceeds and becomes increasingly earnest, uh, even while all these clever staging devices continue. I think this creates kind of an attitudinal conflict as the show runs its course, and I think the authors maybe need to finesse this a bit more than they have. Carrie, what's your view? No, I, I can see what you're 
talking about there, but I have to say I didn't find it in any way troubling. I Perhaps it's just because of the, the current state of the world to have something that was, you know, sort of out of this world as a, as a problem um, that is that is resolved within, you know, 90 minutes of, of high-energy, fun, visual, and uh, musical yes. delight was well, a nice that, thing yes. to focus on. I actually, and I have to say, I think the score is quite good. Um, I think we, Jonathan, you and I had talked about an earlier kind of teaser of this that was done as a video project last year for Chicago Shakespeare called We Are Out There. That is the opening number in this show performed by the entire company. Um, But I think that this is a show that in some ways is tapping into the same sort of tongue-in-cheek B-movie joys that one finds in something like A Little Shop of Horrors. Um, It has, I would agree, a bit more of an earnest message there as well. Uh, and maybe it's just this terrific cast that really sold it to me. It's in the upstairs space at Chicago Shakespeare, so a more intimate setting, which I think works very well um, with with everything, especially those projections that you mentioned. And I just found myself grinning from ear to ear throughout the whole thing. And sometimes that's a good enough reason for me to recommend something. <laughs> You're right. They only had popcorn to go with it. I know. Uh, that was a bit, that was my main. You know, I'm like I, I feel like I'm at the drive-in, but I don't have quite the same snacks. That was your main, right. Um, I enjoyed the score also. It's very pleasant, mainstream musical comedy. They managed to squeeze 17 numbers and reprises into 95 minutes. Uh, And that opening number, it's also the closing number, is very ethereal. It's kind of a standout. You have Mm -hmm. the uh, unseen aliens, and they sing, We are out there, we are among you. We are your neighbors with just the right touch of mystery and mm-hmm. menace. Well, since you brought it up, let's let's take a listen for ourselves. We are That's one of the numbers from Chicago Shakespeare's new production, It Came From Outer Space. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to the Arts Section. I'm Gary Zydek. I'm talking with the dueling critics, Carrie Reed and Jonathan Abarbanel, about this new production, which is an adaptation of the 1953 film, It Came From Outer Space. And Jonathan, you had more to add to that? I also loved quite unusual orchestrations by Mary Schmidt which feature keyboard, percussion, two flutes, two clarinets, piccolo, bass clarinet, tenor sax, alto sax, and English horn. It's really, you know, except for the, uh, for the English horn, there's no brass in it. Uh, there's not, a, a, you know, a, a bass line. This unusual orchestration gives the music lilt and warmth, but without a heavy driving beat, which uh, I, I don't mean that in any negative way. It really works. And the piccolo, the weird piccolo, and the bass clarinet provide the kind of ominous and spooky tones which every good sci-fi film or show needs needs to have. And and I think that cast, too, is so nimble. In some cases, having to do very quick costume changes, uh, with the exception of those who play John and and Ellen, uh, the the, the romantic leads. You know, everyone else is playing several roles, including, you know, aliens, and they need to get their tentacles and uh, other, you know, uh, accoutrements of alienation (laughs) on hand quickly. Um, And I think that the, the direction here has just been stellar in terms of, 
keeping that momentum, you know, sort of leaning into the joke that we know that they're rushing off stage to do that kind of change. It's almost like Mystery of Irma's Up or, you know, a, right. kind of a farce they, like that. I mean, sometimes they do the, the change of a human to alien in front of the audience, right. which is part of the fun. <laughs> yeah. So it's really leaning into theatricality, and I think one of the things yes. that's a challenge when you're taking something that starts out as a cinematic artifact is, you know, finding a way to let us in on the fun that, again, this is this is theatrical. This is happening in real time. They do some of it, as you referenced earlier, Jonathan, with, you know, sort of playing off the idea of here's a 3D moment, you know, coming at you with the video. And the rest of it is done with these kind of deliberately cheesy costumes. Again, the changes sometimes occurring right in front of us, other times very quickly off stage. Um, I have to say, I, re- I mean, I don't want to single out everybody in the cast, but um, among the supporting players, I found Jonathan Butler Duplessis, who plays kind of a very uh, overly talkative uh, telephone lineman, as well as a uh, bar fly who kind of shares in a nice uh, barroom lament song with Ellen called uh, I Can't Figure Out Men. And they are joined by, you know, an alien who also has trouble figuring out men. Um, I just thought that he was a real anchor in, among the cast. But it's it's just a really, really stellar group of actors. And there's something about watching a group of people who seem to be having so very much fun that makes it rather contagious, I think, for us in the audience Absolutely. as well. It's a small ensemble. There are only six. They look good. They perform ably. They have, uh, their voices blend particularly well, and we rarely think about that or comment on it, but voices in, an, in, an, in a musical ensemble have to blend. It's not, mm-hmm. You can't just have strong soloists. You have to have a good blend, too. Right, absolutely. Jay, Jay Ladymore plays this, the, the school teacher, and she plays things pretty straight. I don't mean that as a criticism. Pretty straight as the school mom, but most of the cast takes a, a more tongue-in-cheek approach, especially when they're doubling as aliens. Uh, for the record, record, Christopher Kale Jones is the egghead scientist, and Alex Goodrich is the, uh, is the sheriff and the rival in love uh, with the egghead scientist who comes. They keep making jokes that the egghead scientist, is in a, we're in a small town in the mm-hmm. Arizona desert, and they keep making jokes that he's from the big city, the big city, and has big city ways. And right. the big city turns out to be, wait for it, Tucson. Right. <laughs> On the other hand, you know, Sand Rock has its own attractions, including a sand museum, which is, in fact, a building that has a collection of sand. And you're not going to find that everywhere. So, yes, perhaps we are all a little bit snobbish about the joys and the uh, cultural advantages that small-town life has to offer. <laughs> but, you know, that, that is a running theme in the play, in the musical, yeah. is the idea that, you know, small-town people and big-city people don't understand each other and are distrustful of each other in much the same way that all of the characters have their distrust of the aliens who have come from, you know, from, from a galaxy far, far away. <laughs> Indeed, they have. Uh, they came from outer space. It's, you know, despite my 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 quibble about the the tone of the show that changes, uh, it's a highly enjoyable small scale show. Uh, I think if they cut a few completely unnecessary four letter words, it would be completely family friendly as well. I think if there are future productions, I think it would benefit from two more ensemble members. There are only six. Eight would add a lot because quite literally would allow them to flesh out the townsfolk and the aliens, mm-hmm. and there still would be ample opportunities for cast members to double. Um, it isn't a show for Broadway, and I hope nobody is thinking that maybe this could get to Broadway, which would completely ruin its small charms. 
But it's the kind of show that could play for years off-Broadway. And, of course, in small theaters, both professional and non-professional, small theaters across the nation. So it should have, as they say in showbiz, it should have legs. And i got to tell you, it already has tentacles. (laughs) (laughs) Well played. (laughs) So it really grabbed you, is what you're saying. It really grabs you. Uh, I want to throw in a little note, too, is that Last week, a few days after the 4th of July, or maybe that's two weeks ago now, was the 75th anniversary of the purported flying saucer crash landing at Roswell, New Mexico. And uh, that was in 1947. And I certainly think that very well-publicized event was one of the inspirations for this film and a lot of others, early 50s, uh, you know, saucer sagas. That movie and a lot of the, many of those films were before we'd actually, you know, landed on the moon or had any, you know, the, the space race was just beginning to heat up. So our imaginations were running wild about what we'd find out there. When in fact, it, it appears that the, the moon itself looks more like a sand museum than, you know, than a futuristic, uh, you know, place bustling with, with alien culture. But, uh, you know, we haven't been everywhere yet. And uh, there's, there's lots more to explore as we, as we keep learning. That there is. All right. Chicago Shakespeare Theater's It Came From Outer Space continues through July 31st. Carrie, Jonathan, thanks so much. We'll see you next week. Oh, you're welcome. You're most welcome. I'm Gary Zydek. You're tuned into the arts section. The Louvre in Paris is the world's most visited museum. Millions of people arrive every year to see the Mona Lisa, Liberty Leading the People, and the Venus de Milo, among tens of thousands of other pieces of -of one-of-a-kind art. Last year, approximately 3 million people visited the museum that's housed in a former palace. Keep in mind the pandemic drastically limited that number, which was much, much higher before COVID-19. That number will likely be much bigger this year as travel increases, though there are some added challenges to that, including higher fares and an increase in flight cancellations. For locals who want to go to the Louvre but aren't headed to Paris this summer, a Los Angeles-based entertainment company has created a traveling experience that aims to recreate the vibe of the world's most magnificent art museum. It's called the Louvre Fantastique. The exhibition is making its world premiere in West Suburban Oak Brook. Visitors will be able to view and interact with over 70 pieces that mimic the originals that are on display in Paris. This past week, I visited the exhibit a day before it opened to the public. Crew members were feverishly working to finish the space, which is the lower level of what was once a Sears store at the Oak Brook Center Mall. I caught up with Louvre Fantastique head curator Joanne Caruba to learn more about her approach to creating a Louvre-like experience. This was a conversation I started with C Global probably five years ago, maybe a little more, trying to think about how to make art more accessible, get people really interested in art, thinking about the experience. You know, oftentimes people think of museums as less accessible spaces. We wanted to make it accessible. We wanted to make it interesting. We wanted to make it something that people would really want to come in and be excited about and experience. 
we picked the conversation back up and, and really started to say like, yeah, this is something we would like to do once the pandemic is over, people are, you know, ready to get out and do things and experience and, you know, this is a great way to give people a taste of some really amazing, famous, wonderful works of art. And so let's kind of describe, I guess, what this is. Obviously the Louvre's gigantic, filled with masterpieces. You can't duplicate that. Are there replicas of famous works? I know there's some interactive pieces that are part of this too. Yes, yeah, so we have over 70 reproductions, um, some of which, as you said, are interactive. And the idea is to bring the Louvre to life a little bit, um, to maybe get people excited about going to visit someday, um, see the whole thing. It is huge, as you said, with literally thousands of pieces in it. So we chose... The most famous pieces, you know, you have to have Nikki of Samothrace, you have to have Mona Lisa, you have to have Venus de Milo. These are the pieces everybody thinks of when you say Louvre. But then we also chose works that really highlight the breadth of the collection, the depth of the collection, and some of my favorites, I'll admit. (laughs) What are some of your favorites? Uh, Elizabeth Vigée Lebrun's self-portrait with her daughter Julie. It's such a beautiful, wonderful portrait of a mother and daughter. It's just really heartwarming and lovely. I personally love Vermeer's The Astronomer, which is Antoine von Leeuwenhoek, father of microbiology. So it's kind of cool to have that there, have this wonderful link. Man, the Rembrandt self-portrait, you know, I love Rembrandt self-portraits because they're so unflinchingly honest. He really shows himself as he is, as he's aging, and I I do appreciate his honesty in his self-portraiture. So in like a weird way, the opportunity to to curate at the Louvre, that's like once in a lifetime, but in like a way you're getting to do it with this. Yeah, exactly. You know, I'm probably never going to have the chance to to go to France and actually curate an exhibition at the Louvre, but, you know, I got to kind of choose, pick and choose some of my favorites for sure, you know, and and to see them blown up like this in large, and to give people a chance to see works that they might not ever actually see is really exciting. I, I love the idea of making art more friendly to more people. It's really important to me. I've been fortunate enough to go to the Louvre twice. I've only scratched the surface even in those two visits, uh, but uh, the Mona Lisa, I know where that is because there's a giant crowd of people where you can't even like get close, you can't move. So for here, what's representing the Mona Lisa for this experience? So we do have the Mona Lisa. Um, she is going to be a, an animated image, a moving image, so her eyes will follow you, because that's what everyone says happens when you see it in the gallery. Um, it's over life size, so you know this well, but um, the Mona Lisa is actually a fairly small painting. Uh, so we kind of had it made a little larger, so you didn't really see the details of the background and the little bridge that's behind her and all of these sorts of things. We're going to be animating her a little bit so that she's following you around the room to make it a little more fun and a little more interesting. Because I'll admit, Mona Lisa is not one of my favorites. (laughs) Sacrilege, but true. I mean, when you're there, the the amount of people almost like turns you off because you can't really like enjoy the experience. Then for some of those other works, is it 
then just like as you mentioned I think you, you've blown up the image and it, it's on display. Yes yeah, some of them are going to be larger than they would be if you went to the Louvre and saw them in person um, you know you you would see smaller images of some of them than we have here some of them we did shrink down so for example the uh, Michelangelo slave sculpture is actually I think it's six or seven feet tall and we have it at four feet um, but part of that was also not to overwhelm the viewer the Nike of Samothrace that we have is a little smaller than the original which is I think 12 feet tall if I remember correctly so we did adjust sizes here and there but part of that was just the reality of creating a traveling exhibition the challenges of that um, and also trying to get it so that people could really get up close and experience the work you know when it's a little smaller it's a little easier to really get in and, and look at it and walk around it so of course the, the Louvre has this famous entrance with in France a uh, very controversial the, uh, the the pyramid that's kind of the entryway and there's a pyramid that's a part of this Yes, we do. In the back of the exhibition, we have a replica of one of the IMP pyramids. Uh, we have it lit with LEDs, and it's actually our walkway. You can walk inside of the pyramid, which does kind of recreate entering the Louvre, since you do actually come in down through the pyramids that, that did in the 1980s get turned into the entrance. So we're trying to recreate that to some extent. And also it's controversial yeah I personally love the pyramids I'll admit and they're iconic you know they're just one of those really iconic parts of the Louvre that we think about when we think about that structure so we did want to bring that in as well and give people the experience this is kind of getting into technicalities but just curious so with something like this is uh, is the Louvre do you have to get permission from them yeah yeah we contacted them it's really more for the name all of the pieces are old enough that they are public domain but we did license them through Bridgman Imaging so we did work with an imaging company to be sure we had really good scans so you know these are licensed images as well so we do have permissions for all of this what did you think of this space like when you first came on site? Did you have a vision for how you wanted things to be set up? We did, we did. We had uh, designs, we had plans. Uh, we have a couple of designers that are working with us on this. We have moved some stuff around, I'm not gonna lie. You never stick to the plan. Um, but it really was just to enhance the experience. Any moves that we're making is, is to make the experience a little bit better for the, the people coming to the exhibition. We want it to flow. We want it to be uh, somewhere where someone can just stop and, and really spend time with pieces if they so choose. But yeah, we had a plan. We knew what the space was. Um, and I think it's really going to work. They, they've done the Sistine yeah. exhibition in spaces such as this so you know they, they definitely know what they're doing and, and we can make it work I think it's gonna be really fantastic and then you've kind of, you've been talking about it this whole time just your hope for the the folks that come out and experiences what do you want them walking away with I want them to walk away with um, a sense of the beauty of the works, of the Louvre, um, the depth of the collection, but also a sense of fun. There's playfulness in the exhibition. There's a bit of all of our senses of humor, uh, certainly in the way we have some of the interactives set up. And I want them to walk away thinking, 
hey, art art is actually more accessible than I thought, and maybe that'll get him to go to the Art Institute of Chicago or, you know, the MCA or some of the other wonderful institutions that are here in this town. Is this the premiere of this, the Lou Fantastique? This is. This is our opening. Um, this is the world premiere. We're hoping to tour it a lot more, but yeah, this is our first installation. So, uh, working out some of the bugs, but yeah. <laughs> we'll have that completely done. And, and I think it's really just going to be an incredible experience. Joanne, thanks so much. Thank you. That was Joanne Caruba. She's the curator of the Louvre Fantastique. The traveling exhibit is making its world premiere in Oak Brook. The experience is scheduled to run through at least October. You can find more information at louvrefantastique.com. I'm Gary Zydek. Movie review time on the art section. This past Thursday was Bastille Day. If you're still feeling a, a little French and want to see a great but overlooked film from last year, you should check out the movie France. In it, a TV journalist suffers a crisis of conscience. Written and directed by Bruno Dumont, the film provides a fascinating, though inconsistent, character study of a celebrity broadcaster named France Dumont. The character is brought to vivid life by French actor Leah Seydoux, who many of you might know from the last two James Bond movies where she starred as the mysterious Madeline. She delivers a magnificent performance here in a role that requires a tremendous amount of nuance. France, the character, and the film aren't easy to pin down. For example, the film opens with France covering a news conference where French President Emmanuel Macron is addressing the media. She asks a pointed question and then goofs around with her producer as the president is answering her. The scene feels a bit surreal as we see the real Macron answering France's question. It's actually old footage that's been edited to fit the film. A viewer might assume at this point that France is going to be a biting satire or absurdist comedy. And there's definitely some dark humor in play, but the film is interested in opening other doors as well. Throughout the movie, we see France at work and at home. Her personal life is in a bit of turmoil. Her marriage to a miserable novelist is failing. They have a young son who might be the only thing France actually really cares about. I can see audiences struggling with this film because of the tonal shifts. Dumont mixes humor and absurdity with lingering thoughtful moments that can be a little uncomfortable. There might also be something lost in translation for American audiences. Clearly, Dumont named his main character after his home country in an attempt to create a metaphor for how he views France. There are some universal parallels with American culture when it comes to poking fun at the media and the way we as a society value celebrity, but the film seems to be aiming for a deeper, more specific connection to French viewers. That being said, I enjoyed France, the film, thoroughly, as the movie continues, I began to appreciate Dumont's ambitious approach to commenting on some sobering realities of these uneasy times. Of course, the project wouldn't work without the talents of its star. The film is carried by Seydoux's magnetism and acting ability. Several scenes depend on her face alone as Dumont zooms in with lingering close-ups. And France is a challenging character, in that Dumont makes it difficult to root for her, She's not a fun villain that we can laugh at or a misunderstood anti-hero. Dumont leaves a lot of room for interpretation, creating a cinematic Rorschach test. 
I give France three and a half out of four stars. It's currently available to rent on various digital platforms. This is the art section. I'm Gary Zydek. The Elmhurst Art Museum's ongoing 25th anniversary celebration continues this summer with an exhibition that highlights the ways nature inspires design. Titled Nature's Blueprints, Biomimicry and Art and Design, the exhibit features a dozen interactive installations that highlight the ways nature inspires architecture. The exhibition is the second in a series of three this year designed to celebrate the museum's three mission pillars, architecture, education, and art. I recently caught up with Chicago-based architect Alicia Ponce, who helped create an installation for the exhibit. So what was the, the connection between you and the, the museum? How did that start? I was connected with the museum a couple of months ago, actually. Uh, I moderated a panel on sustainable homes. It was their previous exhibit, and so that's how I met the folks at the museum, and they learned a little bit about me, about what I do at AP Monarch, and the and the architecture that we that we design and its connection to nature. Ponce was a perfect fit for the exhibit because her architecture firm, AP Monarch, is committed to projects that are socially and environmentally feasible. I founded AP Monarch 15 years ago with a mission to design healthy environments. And it's really inspired by nature's system because right now, um, you know, even 15 years ago, Climate change, to me, is something that is at the forefront of, of what we do. And as, as architects, I feel we have the tools and resources to be able to uh, help mitigate and combat climate change through architecture, through building systems. And our approach is to look at nature, how nature works and you know, what I like to tell um, people and my kids, too, is that, you know, nature doesn't plug itself into a wall. So how does it survive, right? How is it resilient in its environment? And so we study those systems and mimic them in our architecture. So that sounds like a, a perfect fit for what the, this exhibit is, which is titled Nature's Blueprints, Biomimicry, and Art and in design. I went through the exhibit. I believe I looked at the portion that you helped create and and you kind of get into this thing called the rammed earth process. So rammed earth, it's a technology in that it's the way that it's constructed. Although, however, building with earth, with straw bales or with adobe, that type of building science, if you will, has been used for hundreds and hundreds of years to create shelter, to create structures that cool naturally when it's hot and heat naturally when it's cold. One of the examples that is very well known is a termite mound and what they do is how they build their mounds to create or to stay cool, to maintain a cool breeze, and it's all, they build it on their own, and it's all, you know, 
again, not plugged into a wall or anything, but it's a very well-made system that we mimic through rammed earth. What rammed earth is, is that we take, ideally, soil from the site itself or nearby, and we pack it in in seven-inch uh, layers. We ram it. We ram it together. Um, the, we build forms so that we can be able to create walls, um, form, what shapes that we want. And people can do this manually, um, and or we can use machines now. But the whole intent is that we're not using, um, we're using less carbon, less machinery, and it's just a whole life cycle that we want to pay attention to. This isn't, for you at least, this isn't just like hypothesis. You're actually like working on a project in, in Mexico that utilizes this idea? Yes, we are working on a project in Mexico in the town of, in the state of Aguascalientes, and the town is called Calvillo. Um, and it is also known uh, as a magical town, so it is so fitting that I think that we are creating this type of uh, architecture in a town that's magical because we can, people will be able to build it. You know, we are going to invite the youth from the town to learn how to make it. And it's also something that, you know, creates pride and happiness that they took part in what will be a Civic Youth Cultural Center, and it'll be a pretty iconic building for the town in that it sits on a beautiful um, hillside with a with a beautiful panorama, um, and it'll come from the earth and built into the earth, and so we want to be able to show that this is possible, not just for us in the building industry, but those that the rest of us that use buildings that, you know what, we can make this type of architecture possible so that we can coexist with the environment. We don't want to continue harming the environment by materials that come across the ocean or, you know, mechanical systems that are constantly on to cool, you know, cool, hot buildings. We want to be able to um, use nature systems. Um, orient the building so that, you know, certain spaces are are heated um, at certain times of the day. Um, because one thing that's for sure, this, you know, in the Western Hemisphere, the sun rises in the east and sets in the west. So we know that if we use that piece of information, we can orient the building and use it to our advantage. If you're just tuning in, this is the Arts Section. My name's Gary Zydek. I'm talking with architect Alicia Ponce about the new exhibition at Nature's Blueprints at the Elmhurst Art Museum. So walking through the exhibit myself, I was struck by some of the, the things in the natural world that, that serve as inspiration for man-made designs and engineering. And I was thinking, I don't know how many of us really think about the way things are designed unless it directly affects us. But it, it does feel like there is a greater awareness of, of how things impact the environment. Do you get a sense that the people are paying more attention uh, to those types of things? Yes, I think so. 
and that's because, you know, you know, here in Chicago, we've experienced, you know, just two weeks ago, we experienced extreme heat conditions. We experienced uh, torrential, you know, thunderstorms, um, and we experienced 60 to 50 degree weather all in one week. So that is due to uh, climate change and the changing, you know, the changing weather patterns because we are buildings account for 40% of carbon emissions going into the environment, but it's uh, 70% actually here in Chicago. So if we can, you know, design these buildings to use less um, energy and work more like nature, I believe that we're able to, you know, help ourselves out for future generations. So we feel these things are happening in the weather patterns. Um, I think that if we just pause, like we were able to during the, you know, the shelter in place and the pandemic, a lot of us, you know, paused and enjoyed nature and really saw, you know, how um, water streams became cleaner, the air was cleaner, you know, there was less travel either through through airplanes or cars. So I hope that a lot of us were, you know, I hope that a lot of us were able to enjoy nature and really appreciate how it contributes to to our health. Yeah, I learned I learned a lot of stuff too walking through the exhibit. You always learn something new because imagine how many you know millions of species are out there and they are just surviving out there without what we have air conditioning systems, right? Right. <laughs> or the right. grid. That's Alicia Ponce. She contributed to the new exhibition, Nature's Blueprints, Biomimicry and Art and Design. It's currently on display at the Elmhurst Art Museum through August 14th. You can find more information at elmhurstartmuseum.org. There was a boy, a very strange enchanted boy. They say he wandered very far, very far. And that's going to wrap up this edition of the Arts Section. But remember, you can always find more arts and culture online by visiting the program's website over at theartssection.org. There you can find past episodes and individual features available to listen to on demand anytime you want, plus pictures and links that go along with all the features you hear on the show. My name is Gary Zydek. I hope you'll join me again next Sunday morning at 8 a.m. right here on 90.9 and 90.7 FM for another edition of the Arts Section. Until then, I hope you have a great week. Stay cool. Thanks for listening. And while we spoke of many things, fools and kings, this he said to me. The great thing you'll ever learn is just to love and be loved in